I am Dr. Thomas Slavin, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs for Myriad Oncology. Welcome to Inside the Genome. Joining us, we have Jennifer Klemp. She's a MPH, PhD, KU Medical Center, clinical psychologist and cancer risk counselor. We'll have her talking today about her thoughts on telegenetics. We also have uh, joining us Shelly Cummings, who's the Director of Oncology Medical Affairs at Myriad Genetics. So Jennifer, please audience a little bit about your background and what led to your passion for promoting telegenetics in cancer care. Great. Thanks, Dr. Slavin, and thanks, Shelley, for hosting this podcast today. Um, so I've worked in genetics for a long time, and the first test um, I ever sent in was 1997 to a, a company that actually was a precursor to Myriad called Encore Med. And, you know, in those days, we had a high-risk clinic that was very kind of tissue-specific and, and much more not necessarily about talking about risk, but trying to just have a screening opportunity for patients who had family histories, they had a prior history of breast cancer, and really just trying to figure out how to keep these women in a cohort. I have a great mentor, Carol Fabian, who I've been with for almost 25 years. So it's been great to have this team approach. But what we realized as the, the launch of, of genetic testing was just starting is that we needed to have a format to really start discussing patients' risks, putting that into perspective, because so many of our patients were over-exaggerated in regards to what they thought their risk was and what it really was, and what type of opportunities from chemopreventives to screening opportunities would be available to them. So we started a risk counseling program in 1997, which was pretty clunky, and we kind of worked things out. And at that time, you know, there were kind of two options of how we would go forward. And as you mentioned, Dr. Slavin, I am a clinical health psychologist by training. And that was actually pretty purposeful, uh, partially because our team really needed that additional uh, type of discipline and because it is actually a billable PhD. So unlike a lot of colleagues in genetic counseling, I thought that might limit me in regards to how I would work within a academic or community-based practice environment. Uh, but so my passion started, you know, based on my mom's own diagnosis when I was finishing college and I deferred med school and she had a pretty advanced breast cancer at a young age. She had a couple cousins with breast cancer as well. And literally I wrote Carol Fabian, Dr. Fabian, a letter and I said, you know what, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to work in breast cancer research. And that's kind of where I've been ever since. Um, I've been at UCSF for a while. I've been other places, but um, it's really been, been sort of my way of giving back for my mom still being here with us um, after going through a bone marrow transplant in, in the mid-90s for um, her treatment of breast cancer. And really just this journey of how do we help individuals and their families understand and manage cancer risk as we have this sort of dynamic uh, medical environment that we live in. I think that's a, a great answer, uh, Jennifer, and I, I find it interesting from a historical perspective that you've been doing this for so long, since 1997, and I imagine during that time you've seen your process and the field mm -hmm. change quite a bit, and given the current environment that we're in right now, I imagine that you have been doing a little bit more telegenetics than face-to-face. -face. Would you be willing to describe a little bit of that, what that you process bet. looks like? You bet. 
Um, so it is true. I've tried a lot of different processes and also how do we get information? How do we, do we need to validate information? And I've worked in a busy clinic the entire, my entire career. So I've had to adapt to physicians, medical oncologists, surgeons, uh, radiologists, and haven't had really the luxury of having a team of genetic experts, medical geneticists and genetic counselors. Um, we've grown that over time, which has been great, but you know, in the late nineties, it was sort of a skeleton crew of how would we support patients and their families. So I think some of the things that um, have really influenced our, our process is unfortunately trial and error. One thing we know is that we do need to have genetic education and, and that informed consent process. And that has definitely changed over the years from something much more long and formal to a much more streamlined process based on whether it's treatment decision-making, whether it's obviously personal or family history. So targeting and modifying that conversation, depending on who the patient is really sitting in front of you. The other things that we've used are a lot more technology tools. We've built recently some, some education videos that are used as a companion to a provider visit. And it takes all of that sort of informed consent requirement and all the genetic education pieces and consolidates it to about five minutes. And why is that important? Because sometimes in a busy clinic, you want to make sure there's standardization, but we also only have a certain amount of time. And we've realized that if we don't incorporate a lot of point of service care, we know that our patients will drop for whatever reason. Uh, they don't go to the appointment. It's one more visit. They don't know why they have the visit. You name it, there's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons. So coming from a a rural state and being that we are the academic medical center supporting the entire state of Kansas and Western Missouri, I've used telemedicine back when it was initial T T1 lines. And I'd like to say I started when I was 12, so I don't feel so old, <laughs> but uh, I've been around for a while. And uh, the T1 lines were different because patients would actually have to go, you know, to another hospital where they had that level of connectivity. Now we do everything over Zoom and it's secure and safe and, and gives us opportunities, especially during COVID, to not only do it at a partner clinic in Western Kansas, but directly to the patient's home. So I think that we've definitely seen some changes, but the other piece that I think is important, and I think it's so hard in healthcare, and I compare it to like smoking cessation or weight control, medical behavior change is really hard. And so as we've wanted to update and sort of modernize workflows, uh, there's been some struggles. But I think that with so many patients qualifying for testing now based on, on diagnosis, not just on personal and family history, I think that we have a responsibility to be able to now take these workflows and modify them so that we can really personalize and provide access to patients regardless if they're in a rural or urban community, and it doesn't matter about their insurance or their, their background, we really need to sort of democratize the access to cancer genetic education and testing. That's great insight. You know, so in that, I mean, how do you feel like the patients have responded? Sure. Patients are very grateful, and I actually pulled off, if you don't mind if I read them. So this is like the days where you need to feel good about yourself because you're having a rough day. I go back to our, we do a survey, and the survey after every telemed patient is done with both the distant provider, could be a nurse, and advanced practice provider, physician, as well as the patient. So the patients respond 
this was a wealth of information. It was explained in layman's terms, very personable. I'm very satisfied. I didn't have to travel. I could stay close to home. My sister was also able to listen. So patients, like, and maybe I'm just getting the good ones, I only get this favorable feedback. So I feel like it's very well received. I do feel you have to change your model of delivery, though, when you use telemedicine. And part of that is you have to talk a little slower. I'm a super fast talker, so that's really hard for me, but I have to slow it down. You have to use words that maybe you wouldn't in person because you have that real-time interpretation of body language and so forth. Whereas on telemed, sure, I can see them, but there may be a slight delay and you don't get the, the sort of feel that you would um, when someone's sitting directly in front of you. You have to use reflective listening. So I do pause every few minutes and I ask them to sort of repeat back what were those key concepts they heard me say, what type of questions do they have? And then it has to be shorter. You know, people who traditionally like to have 40 minutes to 60 minutes for a visit, a telemed visit is not really geared to that. It needs to be leaner and you have to use some of those basic, you know, good communication skills. So it does take a little practice as you transition to telemed. Do you use any audio visuals with them? Like they, you send them stuff in advance for them to look through that you're going to talk with them about, or is it all just verbal? At Yes, I'm a big paper collateral person um, because people are different types of learners, right? Some of us are auditory, some of us like to see things, some of us like both. And, and really, that's where having these multimodality tools like video, paper, and so forth are important. So I do have a little packet that has the educational tools that I like to use that can be sent out electronically or it could be mailed. And a lot of the clinics that I work with across the state, they already have all my materials, so they just hand them to the patient if they come in. Um, and so I think the nice part is you do have to make your entire practice electronic, and that's from really the intake to the educational tools. It doesn't mean you still get mail things or maybe an intake coordinator is, is helping to gather information, but you do need to make sure that everything is, is electronic and can be easily sent to the patient or their family. Yeah, we're all just all adapting to, uh, you know, some of the, the length of calls that we're having and the burnout that sometimes comes mm -hmm. with uh, sitting in front of a computer all day. How have the doctors in your uh, community been uh, responding to, you know, what you've been doing? So since I've been doing telemedicine for so long, it, you know, I've, I've kind of been grandfathered in, but I went solely about three years ago to telemed in across our catchment area. So the nice part is for me, it's still business as usual. However, I have had to make some adjustments. So for instance, um, last Friday, I talked to a couple out in Dodge City, Kansas, and as we talk about next steps and doing cascade testing, they have some, some of their kids that are at home right now, too, because their teachers are also working from home. We're going to set up a family meeting. Once we talk to them, we can just drop ship directly from our testing partners. So these types of changes, I think, are so welcome because a lot of families do want to do more of a family education where everybody's sort of on the same call hearing the basic information, obviously not things that are personal to uh, that specific patient, but all the general information we would tell each family member, they're able to hear it together, ask questions together, and they really appreciate that. And I love the fact that, you know, we can drop ship directly now to, to the patient's homes. And so to me, it's really made my job a lot easier and a lot more streamlined. 
So I, I love it that you talk about how the families like to be together when they're learning this information. And when I was in practice several years ago, one time I flew to Ohio and counseled about 20 family members mm -hmm. on a, a known mutation that was in their family. And then, of course, they wanted me to send information all to their doctors about uh, what was discussed, which was a, <laughs> a nightmare in and of itself. But when the doctors yeah. heard how this session was conducted, they were like, this, this should be a new model. This is how you should do. You mm. should go around the country and, and talk to these families. <laughs> I said, well, that's already been done. Henry Lynch is doing that and has been, has been has doing that. Yeah. But when, in this so, world where we're transitioning and you've been doing it for three years with the telegenetics, have you heard anything directly from the doctors? about how mm -hmm. this transition has impacted them. Maybe they're getting feedback from their patients too, but uh, I would like to hear from the doctor's perspective you if you had that. So I luckily have had an opportunity to know a lot of our doctors across the state. And we do have lots of smaller community-based practices and, and hospital-based practices. One thing I feel very strongly about is that whenever I see someone's patient, so let's say it's Dr. Slavin's patient, the first thing I do as a new relationship with a, with a provider, whether it be an APP or a physician, is I actually call their practice and they say, hey, here's who I am, here's kind of what I do, uh, thank you for the referral, and this is sort of my process. So I give the nurse or whoever is, answers the phone, I give them sort of the results follow-up, and then I will incorporate um, kind of a to-do list for the provider, which they really like. And so I want to establish their comfort level, what they want me to do, what resources each of those hospitals has right there in-house. And I feel like because I take a little more time as I'm working with new practices across my catchment area, it's made a huge difference in how I have a relationship, not only with the patient, so I actually know what resources are available to them, but the providers have a lot more trust because I'm not saying something that when they pop back into clinic and see them would be inconsistent with that provider. So I do think that when you're practicing telehealth, um, it is important. And I did this though when it was in person as well. I do wanna reach out and connect with a lot of those referring physicians and build that trust and build that relationship. The other important piece of that provider relationship is helping them build their network. Because one of the biggest fears that they have is that, okay, well, great, I'm going to find some CDH1 and what do I do? And I don't, you know, my GI guys, they don't know what to do. They don't have the same comfort level that we would have at an academic center. So the first thing we do is help them identify, you already kind of have a circle of care that you use. You may want to use some experts as, as consultation and so forth, and, and you, you probably should do that. But at the same time, we want to instill as much point of service care as possible, as long as it's best for the patient. And that's where we as genetic, um, you know, educators and, and those of us working in, in the field do need to help those local providers understand they have to build their circle of care. And then it, then it makes the delivery of, of comprehensive care so much better for them. Yeah, and like you said there, communication is key. Um, you know, I've, I've always been a proponent of uh, a lot of times, I mean, if, if a patient's even in the room, 
you know, just giving that, that uh, referring physician a call really quick just to get on the same page before walking into that room with the patient. Um, as, uh, and, and I've always found that patients have been very appreciative if I say, oh, I just spoke with your, you know, doctor, you know, and, and uh, yep. you know, we, we have a kind of a developed plan for you. And uh, like you said, I mean, point of care, because people want answers and they feel so much better if they can leave a visit in particular uh, with a clear direction and they know their doctors had some communication. I mean, it's not always that we can do those kind of communications prior to seeing patients, but it's very helpful when you can. And if you can't do it prior, doing it on the back end is just always, um, you know, so reassuring and you can at least tell the patient that you're going to, you know, do that. And they'll, and a lot of times then they'll follow back up with the patient that, yeah, we spoke, you know, I spoke with your, your doctor and this is what we discussed. Absolutely. And a lot of the patients I see, they will go to their local, you know, clinic to, to connect with me. Um, although that's changed now with COVID is that, you know, now I just talk to them usually from home, but if they are in the, their local clinic, usually one of the nurses and navigator, the nurse practitioner or PA um, or the physician oftentimes will pop in during that visit. And so that's also really nice. Uh, I do like if, if they are in an, the, another clinic, for there to be a healthcare professional that, that is sitting in the room, um, partially because it helps that with that continuity of care you described. And that's really one of the biggest initial steps that's an adjustment is how do you want your practice to go when you're doing telemed? Are you okay with you know just having you and the patient and if they're at home? Sometimes we don't have a choice, like right now with COVID. Um, but if it's a ongoing practice, you know, what will that look like? And, and it's probably best to try a few of those methods out and see what works best for, for you and um, for the patients that you're serving. So it sounds like uh, through the conversations we've had so far, you've been doing telegenetics for three plus years now, and you've shared a little bit about any changes that coronavirus has uh, mm -hmm. caused you to change, you know, whether it's having more conversations with uh, patients at home. Are there any other big changes that the current crisis has created for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest changes, um, because all screenings and so forth are canceled, right? We don't want to have any um, patients unnecessarily, you know, having to come to the clinic or the, the screening clinics. So, the biggest challenge is really patient expectation. And that is letting them know, okay, if we have to defer, you know, your screening for a month or a couple months, that's, you know, most likely not gonna change the course of, of anything that, that would be happening for your risk management. Um, it's, it's really having our intake coordinators, our navigators, anyone who's talking to the patient and sort of going through those, those steps of scheduling and so forth to be able to help really educate them on uh, how do you talk to the patient? How are we understanding what their issues are and really reassuring the patient so that they aren't kind of freaking out or have different levels of anxiety. Um, so these are the, the things that I think, you know, really patient expectation, education, trying to prioritize for the patient uh, what's important. And the other piece is that we do need to prioritize testing right now with the resources we have for patients who are recently diagnosed or where we need that information for decision-making. So some of those patients who are doing it for more, you know, putting their risk into context, they may be pushed off a little more. So those are some of the things that are happening sort of in the clinic today. Yeah, it's it's a different world. In the last uh, two weeks in particular, there's just been so much changing with billing, you know, around telehealth yes. and education. 
And so what have you personally seen? I mean, how are you building in the past and how, how has that right. changed uh, now that we're in a different era? Right. So I've built every way probably humanly possible from, you know, been incident to, to you name it. We've tried facility fees, you know, all the different things that have been out there. One of the, the uh, roles that I play in our catchment area providing genetic service is through our statewide network called our Masonic Cancer Alliance. So through some philanthropic funds, um, I provide service and we don't have to charge for that, even though the local practices, if they go to the community-based practice, they can, if they, if they want and incorporate it into, you know, part of their visit. So there is opportunity for billing. Um, there are provider billings for telehealth that we do use. And we have a very well-established telehealth program that's been going on for years um, in oncology. And so that's something that's already been established. Now with the expansion of the Medicaid uh, reimbursement plus our commercial insurers, that's expanded that opportunity. Unfortunately, in our community, genetic counselors still can't bill even under those expanded codes. So we've really had to sort of determine what, what are we okay or not okay with sort of billing or not billing, but our genetic counselors in, in general are not a billable service in the organization. So it's not a, a big difference for them as we um, kind of go into COVID-19 mode. I wonder if you have any pearls or words of wisdom for clinics and programs that either are considering starting telegenetics in their practice or are already doing it and might be hitting some hurdles. Uh, anything that you've learned along the way that you might that might help others? Absolutely, there are. Uh, we are getting ready next week. I run a survivorship echo series with Project Echo, which is this kind of hybrid um, didactic and case-based learning model. And we're converting it to a mini series for COVID. And the first session we're covering is how do you as a provider adapt to this world of telemedicine? And that's both from preparing the patient and, and really empowering them to understand what that's gonna look like and feel like, as well as the provider. So the, the important part about this very rapid change, which every institution, every organization had, probably had a telehealth plan, but that 18 month plan has just been accelerated into a two week plan. So you don't have a lot of time to, to sort of uh, get used to it. It's, it's sort of trial by fire. And I think the biggest perils of wisdom that I would say is that we do have to have the patients really be prepared. And if the patient's prepared, if they, and cancer patients in general um, are, are usually, you know, some of the more, more flexible patients in that regard, because they understand we don't want them to be, you know, compromised further than they are. And they get why we're taking precautions. Um, they also get that we're not perfect. And so I've always told patients up front, you know, medicine's black, white, and gray, and you want us to be all black and white, but it's not. And so putting that, that sort of limitation that we're working through this together, we're going to get your questions answered, we're going to support you, and really reassuring the patient, I think is, is absolutely essential. So preparing the patients, uh, reassuring the patients, providing them with the opportunity for testing out their telemed equipment beforehand. So having a scheduler or a navigator call the patient and do a test, show them how to use Zoom or whatever platform you're using, those are all really important in preparing the patient. And then for the provider, learning how to really very quickly talk slower, 
you aren't going to have the ability to use that body language. Like sometimes you like to be able to interpret how the patient or their, their caregivers are feeling. You may have a patient sitting in front of you on Zoom and they have their children or their partner or whomever on three or four different Zoom screens. So you may have, you know, little boxes all across your, your, your field of vision. And that's kind of the new normal that we're living in. And that's very different for pro providers who aren't used to using technology. So I think that give yourself a break. You have to kind of use what you have today and, and use it the best you can, but it is helpful to practice. It is helpful to go ahead and get on Zoom and record a session on your own and watch yourself. Um, I know in my training, I had to tape every one of my sessions with a patient, and it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me in how I react and, and engage with a patient. So I would encourage every provider who is using it or getting ready to use it to watch yourself, and that's the only way you're going to get better. That's really good advice. I hope the listeners got excellent pearls of wisdom from um, mm -hmm. Jennifer. I really just want to thank her so much for being on the podcast. I mean, she is clearly on the front lines and has been for some time due to necessity and uh, her love of patients, really promoting telegenetics. And now, you know, just really being able to give that expertise to the world in our new age. Thank you so much again for being on the podcast. And uh, I want to uh, say thank you to Shelly for accompanying us. And yeah, I hope all the listeners get some uh, really good knowledge from what we talked about and uh, can take this and go forward and use telegenetics empowered. There you go.